I think one of the things that companies are fundamentally doing by picking a vendor is not just buying them for what the capabilities are today, but what the capabilities will be in the future. Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. My guest today is Varun Mohan. Varun is the co-founder and chief executive officer of Codium, a code acceleration toolkit built on cutting edge artificial intelligence technology. The company was founded in June of 2021. Prior to his current role, Varun was a tech leader at Neuro, an autonomous vehicle company. Varun has a, both a bachelor's and a master's degree from MIT. I look forward to hearing more about the genesis story of Codium, the evolution of AI technology from his perspective, the future of his company, and more through this conversation. Varun, welcome to Technovation. It's great to speak with you today. Great to speak with you too, Peter. Thanks for the introduction. No, no, my, my pleasure. Well, uh, I, I just mentioned a brief overview uh, of Codium, uh, Varun, and I would love to have you take a moment and provide more of an overview uh, of the company you lead, if you would. Yeah, so it's kind of an interesting story. We started in June of 2021, but the idea then wasn't to build a code acceleration tool. It was actually to build a platform to make deep learning workloads more efficient. Uh, we ended up building GPU virtualization technology. So without getting into all the nerdy details, we made it so that applications that could run efficiently on GPUs could run entirely on CPUs and transparently offload their computations to a remote GPU. This made it so that large GPU workloads could be run on fewer GPUs. We even ended up building GPU compiler technology to make workloads on GPUs run even faster. At peak, we were managing upwards of 10,000 GPUs in the public cloud for a variety of companies, which accounted for, this is like a RAG stat, 20% of GCP's total GPU inference capacity in, in a couple of data centers. One interesting thing that happened in the middle of last year, or I guess right now, 2022, was transformers and generative AI started to take off. We started to notice that transformer technology would usher in a brand new set of capabilities that were never possible in the past. Code assistance was one of them. You know, companies like Midjourney ended up coming out to deliver amazing generative AI image capabilities. And we as a company decided that it was the best use of our capabilities to go out and actually build a code generation tool, mainly because a lot of us at the company had used these kind of code assistance capabilities. And we thought that it was just the tip of the iceberg. So we started creating Codium and we released the first version at the end of 2022. We started the year in 2023 with a thousand users. Now we have hundreds of thousands of users using the product daily. We process over 50 billion tokens of code a day, which is around five to 10 billion lines of code a day. We're one of the top five largest generative AI applications in the world, period. And we also serve many, many large enterprises, which is an interesting story that came about after deciding to serve a vast number of developers. Fascinating. And, and like a lot of startups, very interesting also to hear about the pivots uh, from initial intent to current intent. Talk a bit about, I mean, that, that's remarkable how fast you ramped up to a thousand users. Clearly product market fit was something once once the pivot happened, something you established very quickly. Were, were these clients you were already serving under the initial hypothesis or were there different pathways to gaining that kind of traction? Talk a bit about that if you would. Yeah, so it was interesting. We One of the benefits of building a product that developers use is we at the company ourselves were able to use the product uh, very quickly. So we knew that the project was good enough. We also, having come from an infrastructure background, we set an ambitious goal to start with. We made our product entirely free for individual developers. So this made it so that if the product was exciting and it was free, we would be able to attract developers really, really quickly. One of the really interesting things about that is that put a lot of stress on us on the infrastructure side. You can imagine these generative AI products run trillions of computations to perform one inference alone. And 
our product provides autocomplete capabilities. So on every keystroke, we were doing trillions of computations remotely. This is where some of our original founding story of being an infrastructure company came into being. We were able to train our models entirely from scratch. We were able to build a custom inference runtime and even manage servers at scale. And that was something that was first nature to us as a company. So all of these things came together to be able to very cost efficiently be able to provide the solution to folks at scale, which is also a positive for us as we ended up serving enterprises and enabling them to self-host the capabilities. And the power of, of uh, at least initially offering so much for free, obviously, um, is is attractive and it attracts a lot of, of people to the product. Can you talk a bit about the evolution from from free to paid and, and how the, what the revenue model uh, for this looks like? Yeah, exactly. So our first you know, sort of statement was, we could focus on making a lot of money in the beginning when we build Codium, but if no developer likes using the product, it doesn't matter. Even if we go to a Fortune 500 company and we told them, look, the capability is awesome, they would just be like, give me the proof. So I think it was incumbent on us to prove that the product had a tremendous amount of value first. And we saw that very, very quickly. So the moment Codium started getting used, first, the free nature of the product enabled us to iterate incredibly fast on the technology. We were able to ship new models really quickly. We were able to ship new capabilities really quickly, provide a vast majority of IDEs. And even if the capabilities were buggy at the beginning, our developers would give us a ton of feedback. We have a Discord channel with over 50,000 people in it where people are just constantly giving us feedback on, hey, this, this feature worked or this feature didn't. There's also maybe one other interesting capability for the product in that it provides autocomplete capabilities. So as the user is typing, it provides suggestions that could generate you know, five, 10 lines of code. And one of the beautiful things about that product is every keystroke, we get an acceptance or rejection feedback. So every single day currently, we get 10 million pieces of feedback from our free users uh, on the product. So we have one of the largest free platforms. This enabled the enterprises that reached out to us to have confidence that, hey, this company is, is actually has a real product that developers love. On the VS Code Marketplace, which is one of the most popular IDs, we have a five-star rating there. So interestingly, from, from this, we were able to then go to enterprises and give them a compelling value proposition. The second thing that was also really interesting was our product is capable of being self-hosted. And part of the reason there is because we train our own models and we don't just use an external API, we're able to then go to these companies and allow them to run the product entirely on their own hardware. This is incredibly critical, especially given the fact that code is extremely important IP for most large companies. In fact, a lot of large companies self-host their code bases automatically as well. So one of the things we believed we didn't want to do is if we go to an enterprise, we didn't want to make it so that the enterprise needed to compromise on their own security posture. We, we view that as like really important. You hear so many stories of code bases leaking and all this other stuff and companies are very caring about these, these details, right? So we were then able to very quickly self-host the capabilities. And part of it also comes to our infrastructure background of then being able to self-host it without asking the company to buy a lot of hardware. So this is where then having this massive free product, since it pushed a lot of onus on us to reduce the amount of hardware necessary to deliver best-in-class product, we were then able to provide those wins to our enterprises as well, if that makes sense. It does. And I also noted, as you were talking about the evolution of the company, the, the, the more formal launch of Codium at the end of 2022, that really coincides with the uh, introduction, at least in the broader public, of generative artificial intelligence and the kind of massive uh, sort of demands and expectations associated with it. I'm wondering to what extent um, has the, the clearly that has been a boon. So, but but I'd love to have you describe the the course of uh, the past year and a quarter, say, 
um, in, in which so much has changed, uh, so much enthusiasm and demand for this, and how that also built uh, further enthusiasm for for a product like Hodium. Yeah, I would say it's both a blessing and a temporary curse. So the blessing is, hey, there's a tremendous amount of excitement in the boards of these large companies uh, for CIOs to actually be able to use a new technology that could revolutionize the way they operate internally, right? I think ChatGPT is something that clearly has taken the world by storm. My grandma uses ChatGPT. It's, it's a pretty popular tool now. But one of the caveats then is unrealistic expectations of what these tools are actually capable of doing. And it's not that these tools can't once in a while provide magical moments, but I like to tell people when you look at an AI product, there are like three things that really matter. There's the quality of the product, there's the latency of the product, and there's the correctability of the product. And, and each of these three pieces are really, really important. And if I was to just delve a little bit more deeply into that, if the quality, meaning the, the fraction of the time it's correct versus not correct is low, clearly people will not want to use it. If the latency to get a suggestion or to get the response is high, then the bar for quality goes even higher. And if the quality is, is okay and the latency is fast, but it changes a lot of things and it takes a lot of time to correct the result, then it's also not fun. So there's the sweet spot of these tools to actually make them usable inside a company. And we saw a massive mass number of these Twitter demos of, hey, here's what you can do with the tool. Here's what you can do with the tool. But the number of these tools that are actually capable of reliably being used inside companies is not very high, actually. It takes a certain art to make the tool actually usable. So I think the blessing was, it was obvious that from two years ago, these tools being really valuable to now, it was extremely obvious that these tools had a tremendous amount of value. Just to give you some insight here, the Codium autocomplete capability, when a developer ends up using it, generates over 45% of all software that the person writes. This is like, like a sheer amount of muscle for a developer that has never been seen before. But also at the trade-off, we will not promise that, hey, all the code your developer is writing can be iterated away with just natural language, which is what was some folks, you know, their intentions were at the beginning of last year. So I think we were able to address demand very aggressively, but at the same time, we tried to be very upfront with companies of, here's actually what the, what the solution is capable of. We will be pushing the forefront of that, but we can't make you crazy promises on what it will be capable of doing in the next year or two. Fascinating. And as you noted, uh, you're also a user of your own products. And I wonder with data like what you just shared, you say 45% of all software that, that a coder writes is auto-generated by Codium? That's right. If that's the case, then talk a bit about how that's impacted the way in which you think about your own um, users, so to say, within your company, and even kind of like your pace of hiring or other ways in which you've drawn value in this human machine collaboration that is is adding greater levels of productivity. Does it mean, for example, you need less people to do the same amount of work? Um, people are doing different kinds of work as uh, a portion of what they would have been doing is now um, uh, done by this. How do you think about that mix? So I think in the software development lifecycle, which is what we mostly think of, writing the software is a good chunk of the software development time, but there are other parts of it as well that we'd like to address. The way I like to think about it is when I, you know, for our company, as well as when I talk to other CIOs at, at public companies, usually the result of, hey, your developers can do more now is not let's have fewer developers. I think the, the usual answer is let's actually make our developers capable of building more systems than previously were possible. And the reason why I'm saying that is software engineering is uh, a bottleneck resource. I think if a company could do more with software, they would actually do that, right? Uh, you look at the largest the largest public companies, they have so many engineers at, the, uh, at these companies. 
I think the way they would look at it is, here's how much I have budgeted for the amount I can spend on engineering. Now I can just do a tremendous amount more than what I could in the past, if that makes sense. It does. Yeah, that's really, really compelling. I also find it compelling. You've mentioned a couple of different times the advantage of having infrastructure backgrounds that many peers of yours and organizations that aspire to do something at least adjacent to um, what you're doing now have uh, purely software backgrounds. And so understanding kind of the, the key components to get the three main factors you listed before uh, correct in order to make sure that uh, uh, quality of product, latency, and corruptibility are all where they need to be so that you're meeting at the right place in order for this to um, get to the levels of adoption you've experienced. Very interesting that uh, your background has been an unusual one as, as you've sort of like hinted at by, by virtue of the, uh, of the anecdotes. Um, as it's proven to be such a remarkable uh, boon for an idea like what you're pursuing. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of strange how how this field came out of existence out of nowhere, basically in the last couple of years. Yeah. So as, as you think about the value that you are seeing from the use of generative AI, more generally speaking, you've talked about the the fact that there's been a lot of hype about what it what it can do. Um, it, we now have. You know, again, at least in in, in more popular uh, versions of this, and experienced by technologists and non-technologists alike, from tools that have been put out there by a variety of different organizations. Uh, you know, different use cases that are developing, uh, different kinds of value. Uh, a lot of it, sort of cost-saving centric, perhaps, um, starting to get more, uh, at least, an enterprise value of of like revenue enhancement or 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 and the like. I wonder, as you as we stand here today in the first part of 2024. What what are what are you uh, particularly excites you about what is possible um, you know in the in the months ahead as a result of what you've seen? The thing that makes me most excited, at least if I was to bring it to us, is just how can we address more of the software development lifecycle for the largest enterprises? And the way we sort of think about it is, you know, I talked about security, how we enable large enterprises to self-host the product, but another thing we let companies do is personalize the product to their private data. Our goal here isn't to give large enterprises, the product that everyone else gets. We enable companies, once again, because of our infrastructure background, to continuously fine tune the models on their private data. So imagine a, a model that is perfect to a company, always getting run for every developer inside the company as they're typing, as they're chatting with their private code bases. And then as well, we index all of their private data sources. And we're capable of doing this because we are self-hosted capability. Or if it's a, if people consume us on SaaS, we are able to do a lot of these pieces of functionality locally so that we don't end up seeing their private data. So by indexing their private data, like Jira and Confluence, we're then able to give people responses that are the most personalized from the ticket creation all the way down to the PR. And then my, my sort of thought process is right now, we provide a lot of value in the IDE so where users write software. How do we start to provide value in the places where users review code? Users actually actually not only review code, but generate entire generating PRs or parts of PRs. And our goal is part of reaching there is improving the quality of our models, improving the personalization of the product. But then on top of that, the way we'd also think about it is what are all the other pieces of the software development lifecycle we can help with? Testing of software. And that's the sort of way I would think about it. Instead of it being a general tool that only helps within the IDE, how can we start to help different aspects of the software development lifecycle? And are there common uh, practices, operating models, uh, uh, roles that you see among those organizations, client organizations, who are the 
the best users? Are there some best practices you've seen emerging from large enterprises in terms of how they organize and think to be able to ingest a tool like your, your own and, and or AI and generative AI more specifically, uh, or more generally, I should say, um, what are you seeing as some of the points of differentiation for those who are getting the most value from something like this? Yeah, I think it's that's a very interesting uh, sort of point there because the companies that get the most value kind of educate their developers that these tools are not 100% correct always. And this is like a big learning lesson because the companies that don't, we end up getting a, like a barrage of tickets being like, hey, this suggestion wasn't perfect. And part of it is the product will get better. And as we personalize your private data, the product hallucinates less. But it's going to be it's going to be a while before these products completely remove that piece of functionality, if that makes sense. One of the harder parts about code that is very different than other other pieces of technology is the largest enterprises have hundreds of millions of lines of code, and these pieces of code are all interrelated. This is like a little bit different than you know when in a professional setting you're writing a document. The document might be related to a couple of other documents, but the sheer number of bytes of data that are all related and make up give you full context of a document probably fit into you know maybe thousands of lines, maybe maybe tens of thousands of lines, but this is like a couple orders of magnitude off from code. So this is also another thing where, which we're actively thinking about, which is how do you make large scale changes in these massive code bases? This is also another thing where Twitter demos are really easy because they make an application when there's no existing code, right? And if there's no dependencies at all, it's a much simpler problem than if you already have a bunch of microservices inside your company. You have a lot of different code bases, a lot of different languages. How do you make sure you can build systems that are extensible that actually relate to the existing software inside inside the company? So all that being said and done, this is like an extremely hard task and something we're actively working on. But the companies that succeed are able to tell their developers, look, this is like the worst the technology ever will be. And here are the ways in which we're getting the most value from the capabilities today, if that makes sense. It does indeed. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's also, frankly, I... Uh remarkable given how the, the the relatively short duration of your your company the amount of progress that you've made there's been a lot of pontificating as to whether or not the spoils of of generative ai are going to accrue to the largest players given history given quantities of data given the amount of technical prowess that they have the number of people they can put towards this and yet an example of an organization like yours which in essence just a little more than a year ago launched the product we've been talking about making such such tremendous inroads into not just uh, you know kind of also ran organizations but leading organizations and i wonder if you you know what what some of the difference makers from your perspective have been the learnings to be able to take on the goliaths and and actually be the davids of the story yeah, I think maybe there are a couple of things here. First and foremost, we talked about this at the beginning. Having an individual product has been incredibly valuable. We work with some of the largest companies like Dell, Andural, I, I, probably some companies I can't name yet. But the fundamental thing is these companies trust that we have real developers using the product and getting a tremendous amount of value from it. There's no more social proof. And this is like very different in that since we're a product that needs to serve developers uh, and provides value on a per developer basis, ultimately there's we need to do an, a proper enterprise sale and we are we have a growing sales team, but a pure enterprise sale without developer love would mean that the product would have no traction at all. So that's one thing. And having a lot of free developers using the product means that we get over the data mode of how do people actually get value from this product? This is a big problem for startups where large companies learn a lot more quickly because they have so many more users. 
But we're in a state right now where one of the most popular generative AI tools uh, in such a short period of time. So we're able to learn really quickly. Maybe the other interesting thing is for us on a talent side, we have an extremely strong talent base and the space is really new. It's only a couple of years old. So actually being able to find talent that is extremely knowledgeable about the space is like a sparse commodity here. And luckily, since we have such a, such a fast growing product, we're able to recruit amazing talent. And then I will say like, finally, we address enterprise concerns better than a vast majority of companies in the space. When it comes to a large company, a lot of large companies care a lot about security, right? And this is, this is maybe, this is like kind of obvious. We're the best self-hosted product you can actually use on the market by far. And on top of that, with personalization, we give companies the best product for that enterprise. And then maybe if I can say one final thing, and we haven't mentioned it yet, the product that is really well known in the space besides us is GitHub Copilot, right? It's a Microsoft Microsoft product. And, and I think I would be lying if I said Microsoft is, is not a behemoth in the software space, right? You shouldn't trust me then. But one other important thing is we work in more IDEs and more SEMs and source code management tools than, than GitHub Copilot, which is promised to only work well for if you actually store your code on GitHub. And a vast majority of enterprises don't store their code on GitHub. And a source code management migration takes a lot of large enterprises years to actually perform. So we're a product that doesn't make companies change the way they operate, but still give them a lot of the value. And we, we kind of want our technology to speak for itself, but in terms of functionality, our functionality leads Copilot on many other indicators. But as a startup, we need to be better on every dimension to win, right? Which is, it's a high bar, but it's a bar nonetheless, right? Uh, you, you probably wouldn't get fired for, for buying Microsoft. Uh, but in this case, in a fast moving space, we believe that we could deliver many percentage points wins and efficiency over, over the next best product. And in that case, if R&D spend is so high for enterprises, this isn't like you pick the worst product just because it's the bigger name. You should pick the best product for you. Great and compelling answer. Really appreciate you taking that, uh, taking the bull by the horns and addressing that so specifically. Um, uh, Justin, very recent days, uh, it was announced that Kleiner Perkins is going to lead your Series B investment. I believe it's $65 million. I also believe it it uh, brings your total capital raise to nearly $100 million. First and foremost, congratulations. Another phenomenal sign of progress uh, that a, the blue chip venture capital firm would would uh, um, capitalize you in this way. And, and I would love to understand a bit more about what your plans are uh, in, in using those funds uh, and uh, other aspects of this that uh, as you look forward now with uh, greater capital to be able to invest in the organization. Yeah, so I think it's maybe twofold. I think it's awesome that some of the greatest institutional investors of all time are, are backing us, uh, which is a good sign of progress and the fact that in the space, we're going to be around for a while. Uh, that itself is an important indicator to large enterprises. They should not be working with a startup that they think is going to go out of business in a, in a couple of years. That's not a worthwhile investment for them. I think right now, since we're already supporting some of the largest companies, we want to be able to grow out support as a function. We want to make sure that we are delivering the best product to them. And even more than that, since the space is evolving so rapidly, we want to continue to grow our product team and actually make sure our product continues to be best in breed and accelerate it even more. I think one of the things that companies are fundamentally doing by picking a vendor is not just buying them for what the capabilities are today, but what the capabilities will be in the future. And we don't want there to be a reason that those incentives aren't aligned for anyone really working with us. And, and I think this capital is going to go a long way to actually ensure that, that we can actually hold true on our promises.
Varun, we've talked uh, uh, in a couple of different ways about some of the difference makers along the way for you and some of the factors you believe that have led to the success you've had so far, at least with Codium. I want to actually ask you a more personal question, but in the same vein, which is to say, uh, you know, I, I would I would love to understand what have been some of the difference makers on your own uh, professional journey, short as it has been uh, since graduate school, uh, that have that have gotten you to the point uh, that you are now professionally? What, what, what have been some of those things that you would call out? Yeah, I think I think the biggest thing that I've I've learned, obviously, I would I would attribute it to two factors is humility. I, I think you know it's very easy having gone to school and like you know growing very quickly at a company to believe that decision making is is trivial and most of the decisions you make are are correct. And I think having been a CEO at a company, I, I sort of have the humility to say actually a large chunk of the decisions we make on a day to day basis are going to be wrong, and just have the humility to agree that that is true. And the, the people that we should trust the most are our customers and our users. And if our customers and users say, hey, we don't believe that this is valuable, or hey, this is actually really valuable, index on that more than what you believe the future will be. Because one of the things that's very easy to do as a startup is to pontificate on, on a vision and what the future is. And you know that's, that's fun. That's like awesome for awesome while you're doing that. But ultimately, if no one really cares about your vision or you're not able to deliver on them today, then it doesn't really matter. Right. And this is why, like, sort of for, for me, it's been actually relying on some of our angels who are actually operators at companies like MongoDB, some of the largest uh, sort of enterprise software companies, um, as well as our investors for advice. But even more than that, our customers. Uh, and if our customers tell us, look, this, this product is not very useful, we should, we should have a good reason to continue working on that, if anything. Well, Varun Mohan, thank you so much for, for joining me today and sharing your very compelling and interesting story about the founding and now ongoing journey uh, that is Codium. Uh, I, I especially was looking forward to this conversation uh, at a time where I know a lot of technology and digital executives have been a bit cynical about the ability for smaller organizations to, to punch up and to develop uh, products uh, that compete with and indeed actually surpass the offerings of of the behemoths and fascinating to learn from an executive who's doing just that. Congratulations on your success so far and I look forward to keeping in touch. Thank you, Peter.